Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Melody, professor at Georgia Tech, and they discuss how Melody is researching interaction between dogs and computers, sensor vests that enhance communication between humans and dogs, and how this technology can improve the lives of people with disabilities. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So I was curious, could you just give me like a brief backstory of what you've done so far? Wow, that's a big question, Joel. Early on, uh, I was working in industry with a computer science degree, and I loved that. I, I was great. I was a developer. We did defense systems. I worked for several different companies and really enjoyed that. But I found that that I was not getting the creative outlets that I needed. And so I luckily, I got uh, an offer from Georgia Tech to come in as a research scientist to work on a development project, not surprisingly, since that was my background. And when I got exposed to what it was like to be in academia, I just was so intrigued with the idea of complete intellectual freedom. And so at that time, I had my master's degree, and I decided to work on my PhD and uh, got my PhD. And as soon as I finished my PhD in computer science, I met a neuroscientist, a neurologist, actually, who was implanting people with uh, you know, chronic recording electrodes so that they could talk even though they were completely paralyzed and unable to speak. And I just, I just was blown away by that whole idea. Um, my grandmother was disabled. She had multiple sclerosis and she lost the movement and everything but her left hand. So I've always been very interested in assistive technology. Uh, as a result of that, I started raising and training service dogs for Canine Companions for Independence in 1994 or so, we've raised and trained five uh, puppies for Canine Companions. And I've just always been really interested in how can we help people with disabilities? And that has turned into an incredibly satisfying and rewarding career. Uh, a lot of the time, I, you know, I just can't believe they pay me to do these things because I just would do them anyway. <laughs> uh, don't, don't tell my employers that. But it was just, I guess, just luck and uh, a little bit of passion that I wanted to pursue this stream of, of work and it's turned out to be amazing, just amazing experience for me. And where do you get your discipline from? Because in order <laughs> to, like a lot of people, you know, they'll be following their passion. I actually don't like the word passion recently because I just looked it up in the dictionary like two weeks ago and I'm like, I got to stop using passion because people <laughs> say find your passion. And if you look up the definition, by definition, it's a fleeting thing that like goes oh, away. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, you don't want to find your passion. Maybe your purpose, right? Purpose. But, that's a better word. Yeah. But to have discipline, to stay focused and go on this path, it, it takes work. And so did you get that from your parents or some big life-changing event? Well, I am a proud military brat. My uh, mm. dad was was in the Air Force. He's retired full colonel. And that's probably a big part of it. I, I watched my, my mom and my dad both be very dedicated to their careers and to their family and, you know, to um, the... the philanthropies that we wanted to support. And so I think that was just a family, you know, tradition that, you know, if you're going to do something, you do it 100%. And so, um, and I was always very encouraged to uh, get education, very encouraged to achieve 
there were very high bars for us in our family. And, you know, we were expected to get straight A's and things like that. Because if you weren't getting straight A's, you weren't spending enough time on it. And part of that was a, um, a compliment to us because my parents said, you are capable of this. And we want you to do the best you possibly can. So that was drilled into me very early on. And I actually absolutely agree with it. Uh, I've raised my own child that way. And and she is now a veterinarian, very proud to say. Um, so I think that whole whole way of thinking is is just sort of part of my family. I have no idea where she got the interest in dogs from. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Dogs and horses her whole life, bless her heart. <laughs> well, I live on a farm, so that's right up our oh, alley. Oh, so jealous. <laughs> yeah. My wife was a vet tech for 15 years oh, wow. uh, before she became full-time mom. And their vet tech clinic was next door, essentially, to the Southeastern Guide Dog. So they worked on oh, a lot Oh, wow. Of- we have worked with them. Oh, yeah. They're down in Florida. Yeah. So we're a dog family. <laughs> and we do have uh, something else in common. So my dad was in the Air Force. And that's oh, where wow. I... Yeah, him making me make my bed, I think, is one of the first, <laughs> you know how they go. So, uh, yes, yeah, being around that, <laughs> <laughs> yep, there's a very specific way to make a bed. <laughs> I, I bet you and I make so, them the same way. <laughs> yep. It's amazing how much, you know, a lot of people will ask me, okay, what's the secret to being a great technology leader? And it's really hard to express to people, like your environment plays a huge factor. And so understanding yes. how to you know, self-awareness of where you're at in your environment and how to change it and alter it to get better results. It's not like a quick thing. It's, it's a, it's a long learned behavior thing. Yes. And I have to, the other part of that answer is that I've been part of the Georgia tech culture since 1986 in one way or another. So I worked, I did my master's degree in the late eighties. And then I came onto the faculty as a research scientist working on specific research projects. And then I did my PhD in the nineties and the culture at Georgia tech encourages collaboration. It encourages creative thinking. And without my colleagues at Georgia tech, I don't think we'd be where we are right now, but it has been just an incredible ride to work with some of the most brilliant people in the world. It's very inspiring. (laughs) So that is another thing. I think the culture of the organization you're in makes a huge difference as well. And having that support, and just being able to sit down with a colleague over lunch and just brainstorm stuff. And we've come up with some of our best proposals that way. Just very informal, see you in the hall. Hey, what about that idea? Ooh, yeah, let's, let's pursue that. So that's been a big part of it as well. And then so what type of, what are you doing with the dogs? Mind control <laughs> devices? I don't know. Well, we actually, in a nutshell, are allowing dogs to communicate. It's one of the things that we're doing. So I uh, have to sort of start at the beginning. As, you, as I just told you, we, uh, I have raised and trained service dogs for very many years. And so I'm very tuned into that problem space and the kinds of things that they do. You know, uh, I also have very, very close friends who have service dogs because of disabilities that they have. So I hang out with those folks a lot and I see what their lives are like. So I happen to be lucky enough to share a lab since 2006 with one of the pioneers of wearable computing, Dr. Thad Starner. He's a very close colleague, and we have done many, many, many things together. But it sort of shocks me that that we shared a lab together for about six years before one of our other colleagues had the idea of, hey, what if we could put wearable computing on a dog? 
because I usually have a dog with me at some, you know, because I'm raising and training them. Dogs in training have the same public access as a, as a fully trained dog because we have to train them to be okay to be in any situation. So I would have a dog with me pretty much all the time. And it took us a while to, to come up with the idea that, hey, we could put something, we could use technology for service dogs. And our colleague was thinking, well, we could make, you know, pretty lights and make them, you know, safety and that kind of thing. And then I s- sort of had an epiphany. It's like, wow, these dogs could call 911 in an emergency if we put a cell modem and some sort of an affordance on their their service dog vest that they're already wearing. We could put a button on there. We could put something that you could tug. And these dogs could do a number of things. Anything you can do with a computer, these dogs could do. And so that is how the FIDO project started. That was our very first project. FIDO is a backronym that stands for Facilitating Interactions for Dogs with Occupations. So that is uh, how we started thinking about what kinds of things, taking human-computer interaction, which is something that I teach, take, how do we take the theory and methods of human-computer interaction and take it into the animal world? Because we, we have a perfectly valid user doesn't have hands, doesn't have opposable thumbs, but they have a nose, they have paws, they have all kinds of things they could use to activate sensors. And so we started to do some usability testing like we do for humans, but with dogs. We started with dogs since they're easiest to get a hold of, and we learned some incredible things. Uh, we started out thinking about what are the natural things that dogs do in, to interact with their environment? Well, they can bite things. They can hold things in their mouths and carry them around. They can bite on and tug something. That's, uh, these are all things that little puppies can do. They can touch things with their noses. They can touch things with their paws. So we looked at all of these things and said, okay, what, what's the most you know, natural thing for these dogs to do to be able to activate a computer that's on their vest? So we came up with uh, nine different sensors, nine different affordances. Affordance is just the, the word we use in human-computer interaction. That means it's a, like a, something that looks like it's what, what is, how it's supposed to be used, like a button is for pushing, a chair is for sitting, a slider is for you know, sliding across. Um, so what does that mean for dogs? So we had a wonderful time with this, uh, this paper, this uh, study that we did, and we discovered that dogs can indeed turn around and bite something that's on their vest. They can turn around and tug something that's on their vest. It's really hard for them to use their paws on something that's on the vest. So we kept it to a a nose and snout interaction. But the dogs actually started to invent their own ways of interacting with it. So one of the things that we did was a proximity sensor on the vet vest, which is just like an automatic faucet. You wave your hand over it and it turns the water on. Well, the dog would wave their nose over it and it would activate the computer to do something, either send a text message to somebody or make a phone call to 911 or say something. We put a little speaker on there and it would say, excuse me, my owner needs help. And it turned out that with this proximity sensor, the dogs, we thought they would touch it with their nose because that's a very natural thing that dogs do is touch things with their noses. And the dogs ended up inventing gestures to activate the sensor. So they would wave their nose down or they could wave their nose up, which made us think, ah, oh, we could have two different, inter- two different messages here because they can interact with this in different ways. One dog did it with his ear. He just bent his head over and, and activated the sensor with his ear. And so we found out that our user is very engaged and has some opinions about how these things need to be used. 
So uh, it was a fascinating study. Uh, we ended up sending the paper to the flagship conference, uh, International Symposium on Wearable Computing, and we won best paper that year. So that was uh, gratifying because it really made me feel like the community of wearable technology in particular, uh, a lot of human computer interaction people in there, were taking us seriously. That this was something that was not just a whim and not just a cute little project with dogs, that this is a real field. And we started reaching out to colleagues, mostly in Europe, actually. There's some folks in Europe that have sort of about the same time frame started working on these kinds of problems. And we now have an animal computer interaction conference. We have uh, a whole community uh, that is working in this field. And essentially, we, we, you know, we helped create this new field. And that kind of thing, just I, I can't tell you how satisfying it is to see that we have discovered a whole new problem space a whole new set of things that need theory and methods and you know how do we how do we do this best for dogs and of course you know i have also have five horses so we started looking at what kinds of sensors can we use for horses to wear for things like detecting lameness which is kind of a black art veterinarians are amazing at it but it's very difficult to d- detect lameness in a horse and to, to really pinpoint what it is so we developed some systems that would measure exactly the way the limbs were moving and things like that that would would help us figure out what's going on with the horse and now there are actually commercial systems out there that you can buy to do that kind of thing um, so it's been an incredible an incredible uh, ride and i'm very proud to say that that we are pioneers in this area and that it is a serious research area now. Have you written any books uh, about it? Well, I can't really uh, divulge too much now, but there Ah. is a book in the works. That's good. Yeah, when you see industries emerge like that and the people that are a part of their emergence, typically they're the first ones to write books and then that helps get more people because then we can refer back. I could say, hey, if you want to know more about, you know, what Melody's doing, go check out this book. Exactly. Whatever we need to do to dance around this, let me know. We can come (laughs) back and we can have you back on, release the book or put something in one of our shows. That would be great. Yeah. Uh, super exciting. Now, are you doing anything with the brain? I talked to this guy a couple of weeks ago and for humans, they did like, you know, most of the BCIs, they drill a hole in the skull, right? And that usually loses most people right off the bat. It's like, I don't want a hole in my skull if I don't have to. But then they found this like electrode stent and they can put it up to the jugular and release it into the veins of the brain. And then you can control with this link computer and they built their own operating system for it. So are you guys implanting anything in the dogs today? No, actually all of my uh, brain work, and I am the director of the brain lab at Georgia Tech, and actually Dr. Starner is also involved in that very heavily. All of our brain work has been with humans. And so I did start out on the very first team to ever implant a human being back in 1997 with Dr. Phil Kennedy of Neural Signals Incorporated. And he actually, there's a, a documentary out right now called Father of the Cyborgs. Mm. which is about Dr. Kennedy. And I'm actually in it in several places because I was, I was his computer scientist and he was the, the neurologist uh, working on that. So that's out now. You can, you can actually uh, stream it, I believe. But we uh, started out with his neurotrophic electrode, which he implants in the brain, and then the axons grow through it, which allows the, it's, the brain to kind of hold it there. And then with imagined motion... So that we would implant it in the in the motor cortex after an MRI to determine uh, where where this brain might still be active because the folks we were working with were late stage ALS 
and brainstem stroke and folks like that who are completely paralyzed and unable to speak. And so the idea here is let's give them a channel of communicating with a computer or a wheelchair or the TV that doesn't require muscle movement. So it's only based on brain signals. So this was Dr. Kennedy's idea, and he had been working on this idea for like 20 years before that, working in animal models. So I was fortunate to meet him at the very beginning of the work with humans, and we got an NIH grant, National Institutes of Health, to implant eight patients, so eight locked-in people. And over the next five to 10 years, we did that and tried to look at some of the things that you know would make it work better. And I got very interested in non-invasive methods of doing brain-computer interfaces. And as you said, you know, not everybody wants to go through a 12-hour neurosurgery, which is what that was. So I actually got interested in, in things like scalp EEG, just like you would get in a neurologist's office, and functional near-infrared. And lately, we've been looking at brain signals in an MRI, functional MRI magnet. So we've gotten you know, a variety of different things. And the systems that we've built that are non-invasive work pretty well. There are lots of colleagues that are still working on the invasive systems. And interestingly, Dr. Kennedy ended up uh, implanting himself to continue the research after the NIH money uh, was completed. So that's part. That's all in that, that documentary, Father of the Cyborgs. But we have not done any brain-computer interfaces with dogs. Back to your original question. That is not something we've looked at yet, but certainly with my background in you know, 22 years of of uh, brain-computer interfaces. It's something that I've done a little bit of thinking about and to see what might be possible. One of my colleagues, Gregory Burns at Emory University, did a study with awake dogs in an MRI magnet and has done some amazing work with understanding how dogs' brains work. So, and he worked with a trainer, Mark Spivak, who, who taught the dogs to lie still in the MRI uh, magnet, and then they would show the dog's images or, you know, a, a person's face or things like that. And he has sort of proven that dogs actually have a very similar response in their brain to a loved one as a human does. So the hypothesis there is that dogs really do love us in the same way that your family does, that dogs love us the same way, and that dogs have areas of their brain devoted to human language, which is astonishing. If you think about it, there's a species with an area of their brain devoted to another species communication method. Now that makes sense. If you know how dogs evolved sometime, you know, 30 to 14, 14 to 30,000 years ago, dogs decided to be domesticated. If you look at the work of Brian Hare, he's done some excellent work on, on showing, demonstrating that dogs probably decided to be domesticated, that humans didn't capture dogs and forcibly domesticate them. Dogs chose to live around us because it was advantageous to them. And then the dogs uh, became more, you know, friendly to humans, less sharp teeth, literally, uh, less pointy snouts, and lots of really fascinating stuff on the evolution of dogs that they wanted to live with us. And they still do. <laughs> so that's been fascinating too, is that all learning about all the peripheral things that, that go with being around dogs uh, on a continual basis. Yeah, it's definitely mutually beneficial. Like at the origin, you hang out with our tribe and alert us. We give you yes. some of our meat, you know? <laughs> yes. Well, you know that wolves and coyotes don't bark naturally. They howl. They howl, but they don't alarm bark because in nature that would get you killed. So dogs evolved that. That is a 
brilliant example of one of the things that dogs evolved to do that made them useful to humans. Yeah. Coyotes and wolves only bark when they're in distress. So that's a like, help me, I'm you know being killed by an elephant. I don't know, whatever. But the barking, uh, guarding, herding, all of those things are behaviors that dogs learn to do to be more useful and therefore get to live with humans. So that whole thing is evolutionary. Anthropology is fascinating as well. So you mentioned functional MRI. My brother and stepmom are both physicians, so I hear them talk a lot. Not an expert at all. I just am around it sometimes. And the way you mentioned it almost made it sound like portable because is that what it is or no? No. (laughs) We wish. uh, We wish. No, it's a big, giant, full-size magnet that we're using. But what we're hoping to learn, though, on the brain side of things is where in the brain are the activations happening? And is that something we could detect from a scalp electrode? Mm-hmm. either a functional near-infrared or uh, an electrical signal from an EEG. So those are the things that we're, we're studying the MRI. The MRI is never going to be practical for communication, but it is something that we can learn a lot about what's actually going on in the motor cortex. Fortunately, the cortex of the brain is, is you know, kind of right under the skull, so it's pretty easy to get to it with external methods without having to do an implant. So, you know, that's what we're, we're doing is just learning, mapping it out, figuring out where things get activated. Oh, that's way easier socially, too. I mean, that <laughs> Absolutely. research is super easy. Everyone's, everyone's thumbs up with that. Um, so just out of curiosity, are dogs' brains from one dog to another, is there a greater variance? Like, are they greater different than from one human to another? Or are they about the same? That's a great question. So the organization of the human brain with a few exceptions, tends to be pretty uniform. Now, you've got the differences between right and left dominant people. Uh, The organization of of the brain and the left dominant person can be very different than uh, a right dominant person. But the basic pieces are all pretty much the same. And that's actually true of dogs as well, except that with selective breeding, you have very different head shapes. So you've got a, you know, a German shepherd with a long pointy nose, a border collie with a long pointy nose, and then you've got the little, little pug with the brachycephalic, you know, the smashed face and the bulldogs and things like that. The same structures are in there, but the shape of the head is completely different. You've ever seen the skull of a chihuahua? Um, it's like a little apple. You know, it doesn't look like a, a wolf skull, which is probably what a border collie skull looks like. So some of the organization of the brain... Uh, is going to look a little different, although all the features of that brain are still in there. So uh, a large part of the dog's brain is olfactory bulb. So a large part of, not surprisingly, the dog's brain is uh, devoted to smelling. And that's how they understand their world best, is by sniffing and smelling, which is why they're always doing that. But, you know, the olfactory bulb can be very smashed in into the brain in a, you know, like a little pug. Or it can be, you know, more of the original, you know, what we call the wolf brain, a little bit more of that organization. But it's still about a third of the dog's brain. (laughs) So it's an important part. And so they're generally structured the same between humans as far as like the location of the motor cortex and like memory and different things like that. Are there similarities between the dog's locations and the human's locations? Um, Actually, there are. There are uh, similar parts to a dog brain and a human brain. Of course, like you said, the, the dogs hear sounds and process sounds. And Greg Burns and Mark Spivak 
discovered that they, they can actually process human language in, in a, something very similar to the human Broca's area, which is where we process language and, and sounds, Broca's and Wernicke's areas, and they do have a similar type area. So it, it's fascinating to find out that uh, you know the mammalian brain does have a lot of similarities between species, even though we're very, very differently built than dogs. Our brains do have some similar components. Very interesting. Thank you for indulging me on my. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I can I can digress all day. So you just. <laughs> so I'm an entrepreneur, right? I've, I've built companies, and that's I really like the market and understanding value and things like that. But I'm curious, where is this technology that you're working on? Has any of it been commercialized? Is it all still in research? Does anyone have these sensors out in the wild? Well, that is a great question, too, because we I am very interested in making sure that the work we've been doing for the last 10 years does become available for the people that need it. So we have developed prototypes of, for example, a medical alert vest that if someone is having a seizure or maybe a diabetic crisis, the dogs can be trained. They're, they've already been trained to do this kind of stuff. They, they can detect... 30 minutes before you're going to have a seizure, the dog knows it if they've been trained to do it. And some dogs do it naturally. And so what those service dogs are trained to do is to say, okay, you're about to have a seizure. They'll push you up against a wall or into a chair so that you don't fall when you have the seizure. And then they, you know, when you start to have the seizure, the dogs are trained to lick the person's face and to try to rouse them. And so, you know, that these are the things that the, the dog can do is stay with the person. But what if that dog could reach around and press a button or pull a tab that calls 911 with your GPS location? Also, at the same time, it texts your family and says, you know, we're at Starbucks on Fifth and Spring and, and she's having a seizure. So that your spouse or your children or, you know, somebody responsible would know that this was happening to you. But in the meantime, 911 has been called with some sort of a probably a pre-prepared message that this is a service dog from a person with a, a medical condition, epilepsy or whatever, that causes them to have seizures and the dog has now alerted. And so this could save lives. So yes, we would love to have someone commercialize this. This is, I'm a scientist and a researcher and an educator. And so that's, that is my purpose. I won't use the word passion because <laughs> we just had that discussion, <laughs> but that is my purpose and so I am not an expert in entrepreneurship, but I would love for someone who is interested in commercializing this type of technology to talk to folks like that, that, that might think that there's potential in this. And now, obviously, the dis- disability market might not be that, that big now, but if we could get insurance companies to cover some of this stuff, I think that it, it would be really, really valuable for people with severe medical conditions. There are a lot of other uses besides medical alert. I have a colleague at Canine Companions who has a, um, a muscle disability. So she uses a wheelchair, but it affected her ability to speak. So she um, can't speak very loudly. She signs. Her dog understands American Sign Language. And, and so one day they were in a uh, dog park. And so she was playing with her dog. She's, you know, tossing a ball for him or whatever. And she got her manual wheelchair stuck in a field, in a rut in the field, and she couldn't move the wheelchair. Well, she couldn't call for help either because, you know, she can only whisper. So she gave her dog the speak command to bark, which he's trained to do. But they were in a dog park, so nobody thought that was weird, that there would be a dog barking in a dog park. So she sat there for a while, like a couple of hours, 
before a human being finally walked by and she was able to wave them down and say, help, please help me get out of my wheelchair. So we actually built her a system that allows the dog to walk up to a human, to a, a, a person, activate a sensor on his vest and a speaker says, excuse me, please follow me. My, my handler needs your attention. And so that would allow the dog to go and get help because unlike Lassie uh, films and movies and things like that, when a dog runs up to somebody, they very rarely will follow the dog. Especially if it's barking at you. (laughs) If it's barking at you, you might just go, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to run away because this dog is going to bite me. But this allows the dog to literally go up and communicate with someone. Now, when we tested this and we were on the Canine Companions campus when we tested this, so these are people who are expecting service dogs. But we taught the dog to go find a human, go find the nearest human. He went up, he activated his, his sensor. The speaker said, excuse me, you know, I need, uh, please follow me. And the person jumped back about six feet because they'd never had a dog talk to them before. <laughs> so this is something that we would like to become more mainstream. But this is just an example of another way this can be used. A third way this can be used is that Canine Companions also raises and trains hearing dogs for people who are deaf. And so the way a hearing dog works is they're trained on specific sounds like, you know, the baby crying or the sound of somebody calling your name or the doorbell ringing. And so what they'll do is they go up and they alert, you know, like poke the person with their nose or however they want them to alert. And then they'll have the person follow them to the source of the sound. So that, that's great. You know, if, the, if somebody's calling your name or the doorbell's ringing, the dog just gets up and takes you to the front door. What if it's a tornado siren? The dog has no way to lead you to the source of the tornado siren. But that's really important information to the person that's living in that house. They, they need to know that. So we developed a vest that has several different affordances on it that allows the dog to give several different messages. One of them might be the baby's crying. One of them might be the doorbell's ringing. And the other one might be there's a fire alarm or there's a tornado alarm. Any sound in, at all, the dog can be trained on. And it actually sends a text to the person's cell phone, or it can send a message to their head-worn display. So Dr. Starner, Thad Starner, was actually the lead developer on Google Glass. Oh. So he knows a lot about head-worn displays. And so we've certainly uh, built some systems based on that. And this is one of them that the, the person would just have a message flash up in their head-mounted display that would say, hey, there's a um, tornado siren going off. Maybe we should get to the basement. So the dog can talk much more clearly. And, you know, sometimes I'm taking a nap. I don't necessarily want to answer the doorbell. So you would give you a lot more information about what's actually happening without having to get up and go follow the dog around to see what, what is happening. So once we started looking at this area, we realized there are so many different ways that this type of communication can be used. I have one more story. And you mentioned the, the guide dog. So we had a student who's graduated now, but uh, he was completely blind. And he did his undergrad and his master's at Georgia Tech. So he was on campus a lot with his dog from Seeing Eye, which is a group we worked with up in New York. So he had a Seeing Eye dog. And they were going between classes on a very familiar path one day. You know, he'd, he'd been at school for a while. He knew, he knew where he was going and he knew what the hazards might be, etc. And then all of a sudden in the middle of the sidewalk, the dog just stopped and sat down. Now, the guide dogs are trained with something we call intelligent disobedience. So if the dog perceives there's something dangerous happening, you know, right in front of you, 
they'll stop you from moving and, and they won't let you go into danger, like walking into a street or falling into a hole or something like that. And so that day the dog stopped in the middle of the sidewalk and my student said, dude, what's the matter? You know, what, let, let's go. He, he pulled out his collapsible cane to make sure there wasn't like a branch on the road or something like that. He pulled out his cane and he felt all around. He's like, I don't, there's nothing here, buddy. I, I can't feel anything here. So he said, let's go. And the dog said no. And he sat. So finally, you know, he was late for class. So he's like, all right, look, you got to quit fooling around. I don't know if you found a hamburger on the ground or what, but you, we got to go. Let's go. So he gives him a little correction. So he says, a little bit of a punishment. Like, let's go. You're being bad. And the dog said, okay. And they both stepped into wet cement. <laughs> so the dog knew there was something wrong with the sidewalk, probably because it smelled funny. He knew there was something wrong with it, and he had no way to articulate to his, his owner, his handler, that something was wrong. So we actually developed a um, guide dog harness with buttons on it and proximity sensors. We tried all the different sensors that allows the dog to say, there's something in our path. You need to go around. Please follow me. So again, yet another use for this kind of thing, and that's just with service dogs. So, you know, we, we thought about military applications, police applications. Dogs can actually tell the difference between the smells of different explosives and different accelerants. And so we actually have done some experiments, not with explosives, but with just, you know, essential oils and things like that to prove that dogs can actually tell the difference between, say, birch and clove scents, and they can either activate something on their vest to tell you which one it is, or even a touchscreen, we actually have a project where we have dogs activating a touchscreen to tell us what scent they just smelled. And we've shown that that does work. So the dog could tell you, oh, that explosive that I just found is C4, which is pretty stable. You can bump it and it doesn't, it's not going to go off. But it's something really volatile like TATP. If you mess with it at all, it's going to explode. And so that's something the bomb squad wants to know, <laughs> as well as the canine handler. So we even, you know, are looking at, at military applications where dogs would be able to communicate something like that. Again, could save lives. Absolutely. Yeah, I didn't fact check this, but I was listening on Joe Rogan podcast to this doctor. I don't know how to say his name exactly, but it's like, he's like a Neil deGrasse Tyson type person. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I just don't know how to pronounce his name. So people are probably yelling at me right now. <laughs> but I've seen him around. I've listened to him talk hundreds of times. But this last talk I listened to a few weeks ago, he was talking about dogs and like how significant their ability is to smell and that to the dogs, the world is looks very different. It's a bunch of smells. Yes. And then he had also said... Um, this is the fact check part, that dogs have a higher accuracy of detecting cancer in people than most of the cancer test. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. We need like doctor dogs, you know? Well, my colleague Cindy Otto up at, at PennVet, so uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania Vet School, is doing exactly that. They are training dogs to detect cancer. And these dogs are extremely reliable with very, very tiny samples as well. So I think they're looking at cervical cancer. They're also looking at detecting COVID. The dogs can tell if you have COVID or not. So those studies are underway and very, very uh, fascinating stuff. Very, very important. I have a burner, Bernice Mountain Dog. Yes. And he's about eight years old. So, you know, he's towards the end of his life, but he's still very happy and things are going well. So my wife went into labor about two days ago. But from the moment, like maybe like a day or two before the labor, 
that dog will not leave her side. Like usually wow. he's cool with her going downstairs and going to bed and he just kind of lays around. But he's like anxious. I was watching him on the security cam pace back and forth the whole night until she came back up. And and Michelle, uh, my wife, Michelle, she was, she's like, he knows that the baby's coming and like it's going to come soon. And, and that's why he's so anxious and wanting to be right next to me and all this stuff. And I was like, that's crazy. Because he's done it with all three of the pregnancies that we've had. So, <laughs> so he's a pregnancy service dog. That's awesome. Pregnancy service dog. <laughs> well, I've, I have had friends whose dogs, you know, wouldn't quit smelling, you know, like their stomach or something like that. And they went in and they, sure enough, they had a tumor. Wow. And how the dogs can detect that. I, I know that there's some really subtle smell that you probably give off if you have cancer, but the dogs were smelling the exact body part that had the tumor. How do they know? It's fascinating. My thoughts are it's like infrared light. Right. Like <laughs> in the fifties or whenever, before we discovered it, if you were to say that there's this magical light that's around us that can't be detected, you would think the person's crazy, you know? Yep. But these dogs have this ability to detect this and it's just up to us. Like, you know, earlier you mentioned something about putting the dog's brain under the MRI and then being able to see that they can love like a, we've known that for a long time. Right. <laughs> Anybody who has a dog knows that. Yeah, so we just use science like later to further prove what we already what we already know to be true. But there's definitely data out there that we're not picking up on that they or we don't have the censoring technology to pick up on that they are picking up on. Yes. And about three years ago, a company tried to recruit me to come be a, a tech leader at this company. And what they were doing, they were extracting somehow the sensory cells from dogs that could detect bombs and they were putting them into this like organic microchip. Their plan was to sell them to TSA. So you essentially have like the bomb dogs or whatever. Wow. You have that technology, but without the actual dog because they could do it with these cells. Uh, I don't know if they're still doing it or if it ever made it to market. But when I saw that, I was like, man, we live in a really cool time, <laughs> don't we? <laughs> yeah, I've, that's that's really interesting work. I, I do know that there's never been a machine built that can detect odor as well as a dog. Yeah. So we're still pretty far behind. But I guess if you take elements of the dog brain, that might be the only way to achieve that. But I'd rather have the whole dog. But <laughs> <laughs> me too, me too. I like we employ those dogs, right? I'm pro dog jobs. <laughs> That's yes, the platform absolutely. I'm running on, Melody. <laughs> exactly, and you know, I, some animal rights activists say, "Oh, dogs should be free," but dogs chose to be with us for a reason. Dogs love to work, and I'm a lifelong dog owner. And dogs that have jobs are happier. I can just tell you from my oh, yeah. own personal experience that, of course, they have to like their job, but all of my dogs love their jobs. They, they absolutely love their dogs. My dogs go to work with me a lot. They drag me into the lab because they want to do the studies. Yeah. They just think it's the most fun thing in the world to learn how to activate a sensor. I have a, my border colleague can drive a robot and she thinks that's the funnest thing in the world. <laughs> they just, they love it. So I actually think that, you know, the, some of the folks have got it wrong that dogs don't necessarily want to be free. They want to be with us and they want to be doing things with us and they want to be learning and they just like a human, they want to have something to do and doing something that is cool and interesting. is just as great for a dog as it is for a person. So I'd be interested to see like dopamine studies within dogs. Yes. <laughs> That'd be pretty yes. cool. Well, this was great. I mean, is there anything that we didn't cover that we want to get out there to the world? 
One thing that I wanted to mention while you had, had said, what, what else would we want to have commercialized? And, you know, would love to partner with somebody that's interested in doing that. It knows what they're doing in the manufacturing and marketing and all that kind of thing space. And this is another reason that I love research. We were looking at some data from one of our bite sensors for the Fido vest. And it was three different dogs and it was, you know, a bite. And the, the study was that we asked the dog to bite 10 times and we wanted to see, you know, how hard were they biting that kind of thing. And so they had, they showed me the graph of three different dogs. And I said, you know what, looking at this data, I can tell you which dog this is. So they weren't labeled, but I said, this top one, that's like a metronome. So, you know, I said 10 times, you know, get it, get it, get it, get it. And it looked like just completely even. That was my Border Collie Sky, who was perfect in every way and was a service dog, could have easily been a service dog, passed the service dog test. The middle one was uh, a dog we had raised that had failed canine companions because he was too soft. And so you see, we told him to bite and he'd kind of bite. And then we tell him to bite again, he'd bite a little bit. And it just looked, you know, very, you could see he was trying, but it wasn't up to threshold. And then the bottom one was my uh, friend's agility dog who was super high drive over the top and his draft looked like this you know it was like up and down up and down up and down up and down i said that's blitz that's schubert that's guy and they said yeah you're right and i said i wonder if we could tell something about a dog's temperament by giving them a bite sensor and just looking at the data and so this started uh, another project, which we call from a company called Dogstar, which actually the funding came from the military. But we were interested in looking at patterns of activation in an instrumented dog toy. So we started out with an instrumented tennis ball, something that was the size of a tennis ball, a silicone ball, and an instrumented tug toy. And I just wanted to see, can we tell the difference between the dogs that are going to make it as a service dog? And the dogs that aren't going to make it as a service dog, since I had a release dog that, you know, Canine Companions usually lets the puppy raiser keep the dog if they fail. So we kept him. And so I thought this was really, really fascinating. So we did a two-year-long study with Canine Companions where we went in and all of their dogs that had just come in for advanced training. So these dogs are about a year to 18 months old. We tested them with the ball. Five minutes with the ball, throw it 10 times five minutes with the tug toy, you know, have them tug on it 10 times. And then we followed their careers to see how did they end up. And it turned out that we could predict with almost 90% accuracy, which dogs were going to graduate and which ones weren't. And Canine Companions graduates are only about 40% of their dogs that they raise and train and breed specifically to be service dogs. But that's how perfect the service dog has to be because this dog is going to be given free of charge to somebody that has a disability and they probably don't have any motor strength. They probably don't, you know, they, they might not be able to speak. These dogs have to be perfect. So being able to release the dogs earlier that aren't going to make it, even if we're wrong 10% of the time, because we, you know, we were, I think it was 87.5% accurate. Even if we're wrong, we still could save that organization, which depends on donations for their operation. We save them $5 million a year if we can release those dogs early. So that was something that was a big aha. Um, it's like, wow, we can do quantification of temperament. So imagine how that might be for a breeder of agility dogs, say. So which ones are going to be the best agility dogs? We might be able to tell just from five minutes with a ball. Um, what if you know, you're looking at nose work dogs, detection dogs. Is this dog going to be a good bomb dog or a better cancer dog or, a better, you know, something else? We're actually looking at those kind of things with 
Auburn University right now. We are partnering with Auburn's Canine Performance Sciences Group down there, and we have funding from Homeland Security to work on that. Also, we did a longitudinal study with my perfect dog, Sky, the Border Collie. Uh, we said, well, let's see how this goes over time. So we threw the ball for him, you know, 10 times every day for a year. And then we'd take his data and run it through our machine learning classifier to say, you know, did he pass as a service dog or not? And every single day he passed as a service dog until one day, about eight months in, the students ran the data through and they said, he doesn't pass today. And I said, what? What do you mean he doesn't pass today? Is there something wrong with the ball? So we took it apart. You know, we looked at the hardware. There was nothing wrong with it. Did you guys change some code? No, we didn't. Anyway, eventually, uh, for some reason, Sky rolled over. His whole underside was flame red. He was sick. He had a SAF infection. And oh, wow. I couldn't tell. I, who you know was his owner and knew him like the back of my hand, couldn't tell he was sick, but the ball could tell. So we started thinking this could be used for medical monitoring. So we currently have a project uh, with the Georgia Aquarium, where one of my master's students, Josh Terry, built a toy for the sea otters because they have some geriatric sea otters. And we said, we think that we can build toys that will quantify the behavior of these animals and be able to tell when they're not right. So that, you know, usually otters are very destructive. They like to shake things and bang them against the wall, things like that. And they do that. But we can tell that today they're not banging it as hard as usual. And there might be something going on with this otter. So the Georgia Aquarium has been wonderful working with us. And we're interested in taking it into other species like maybe the beluga whales or maybe, you know, dolphins and things like that. That lots of animals that might be willing to play with a toy or interact with some sort of a tangible object that we'd be able to measure that interaction and tell you something about that animal's health. And that, I think, has huge commercial potential. We think we might be able to take uh, our smart toys, is what we call them, smart toys, into a shelter and assess dogs in a shelter for temperament. So is this going to be a good dog to be in a home where, you know, needs to kind of be a couch potato? Or is this the kind of dog that's going to need two hours of hard exercise every day? We might be able to tell that. So these are things we're still exploring. Again, they're prototypes, but we do think that there's some pretty tremendous commercial potential, and we're uh, pursuing patents on these things right now. That's that's a, so it's like a smart toy platform that can do yes. everything from the all the examples you gave me they all have a similar underlying technology exactly they have okay. inertial measurement units IMUs sensors such as barometers that can tell if something's being squeezed proximity sensors that can tell where the where it is in space gyroscopes magnetometers all those all those things uh, we've incorporated into some of these uh, essentially you know toys for animals smart toys uh, you got like a puppy operating system. <laughs> Yes, yes. I used to, in a former life, I was an operating system developer. So you're absolutely right about that. <laughs> so just, just out of curiosity, so you, you make these discoveries, you find these things, and you like move on to the next experiment. Like there's not a like an arm behind you that's like, we can commercialize this, we can take it to market. Like there's not that portion that follows the research. We are indeed focused on research, and that's what I'm trained in, that's what I love, and that's what we want to do. We want to have the, the wild idea and go off and prove that something works or find out that it doesn't and figure out how we should make it work. That's what we do. Georgia Tech does have vehicles for commercialization. They have some programs, uh, you know, uh, incubators and things that support innovators, but I don't want to be the person that runs the company. 
I want to be the one that has a wild idea and goes off to, to yeah. get the next best thing. So that's why I would love to, f- to find somebody that is interested in commercializing some of these technologies because the technologies do need to be out there. I'm just not the right person to run the company because I don't know anything at all about running a company. Yeah. I'm married to somebody that does. Uh, my husband is a CEO, but not me. So we would be, you know, even if maybe some of the, the larger animal-related companies might be interested in licensing some of this technology, et cetera, we would be very interested in talking to some folks about that kind of thing. That is very cool. And then that technology, it's like ready for market or it just has to be like designed for scale or... Yeah, it would need to be designed for scale. Everything that we do right now is is a prototype. So it's not necessarily the most beautiful or the most uh, you know robust technology. So it would need professional designers and marketers to to you know make sure that it fits the kind of demographics that that you might be targeting and to make it work reliably and things like that. But we've built most of the things we've built with off-the-shelf components. And we do design our own circuit boards and things like that. And uh, But a lot of it is off-the-shelf components. So it's, it's not a complicated thing. It's just that the way that it goes together is is uh, what we've invented. So That's crazy, though, because, I mean, if you can save a company millions of dollars, that's a... I think that's the discovery. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'll put you as like our resident animal expert. <laughs> I'd love that. And this has been really fantastic. And we made a podcast. How do you feel? Fantastic. I appreciate very much that you guys are shining a light on this work, letting people know that it's it's happening, that it's a real thing, and it's a possibility to change lives, literally, for humans and dogs. And, you know, we keep finding more and more things that, that we can do. So we appreciate feedback and input and anybody that's interested in maybe taking these things forward, we'd love to talk to them. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.